Hello and welcome once again to the Armchair F1 podcast. Can I say, firstly, it's fantastic to have your company today. We have, of course, been a little bit away for the last few weeks. I feel I feel just watching all of the races over the triple header. I almost needed so much time to catch my breath. I really haven't had the time to get round to doing these recordings as well. It's been a very, very busy term, but it's great now as we come to the climax of the season. We're going to be bringing you an episode Every week for the last couple of races, there's going to be so, so much to unpack as we come to the end of what has been undoubtedly one of the best seasons in the last few years, the last decade, possibly even as well in the 21st century. But really so much for us to unpack now as we come into these last two races, the championship fight. I remember certainly saying at the end of the last episode how nervous I was as a Lewis Hamilton fan going into Mexico that for once... I was genuinely nervous that Lewis Hamilton was not going to win the title. But boy, oh boy, have the last few races changed that. And we're going now into Saudi Arabia with Lewis Hamilton, eight points behind Verstappen. The momentum seemingly on his side. So, so much to unpack. But please, as ever, keep up to date with the podcast. Follow us on social media at Armchair F1 Pod. And as well as that, take a look on us at all major streaming platforms as well. Listen to us on Spotify our Mixcloud account on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Acast, wherever you get your podcasts from. There's a lot for us to discuss. So please listen to us on there. Follow us on social media. Keep up to date with everything that we do, not just to the end of this season, but as well going into the new year and next season as well. There's some exciting things coming up with the podcast as we go into 2022. But Let's stay in 2021 right now, because really, as an F1 fan, I'm not sure I want to leave it right now. And someone else who I think, as an F1 fan, is very much wanting to keep it in 2021, Joe Spagnoli. Good to see you again. Who needs welfare and a 25 race limit? Can we please have 30 (laughs) Grand Prix next year? Hopefully it's some good venues. One thing I forgot to tell you, Cam, in the preamble is um, as of recording this, Spotify Wrapped came out about 24 hours before we started recording this. And this podcast actually ended up as my most listened to podcast of the last 12 months. Thank you. Thank you. Whether that's out of support of Formula One or narcissistically (laughs) going back to listen to my own voice... I'll leave that up to you to decide. But yes, official award-winning podcast, at least in this household. You know what? I am very honoured with that. Thank you very much. I mean, I would like to say that it was the same for me, but I've always had that thing about sometimes going back and listening over your own voice and not always wanting to do it necessarily. So all my top ones were, I think I had The Spectator and New Statesman competing number one and two. An armchair F1 pod, I think, was in the top five. But do you know what? Next year, I'm going to be pushed. Maybe maybe I just need to take more pride in my own work. That, that's what it is. But yes, of course, there's so much for us um, to discuss on, of course, the Joe Spagnoli household um, number one F1 podcast, which, of course, we're very honoured about here. But of course, the ultimate number one that we're talking about right now is the Drivers World Championship. And Joe, I mean, firstly, we've had three races happen in the last few weeks that have been remarkable just in the whole way that the championship it seems was so set for Verstappen at one point Lewis Hamilton almost seeming like he'd given up on winning the championship and then all of a sudden two races in Brazil and Qatar the tables and the momentum seem like they've just turned and oh it's so exciting 
And what you said to me a few minutes ago, um, that episode ranking Lewis Hamilton's five best wins, how premature <laughs> was that episode in very recent retrospect? Um, Brazil in particular, we'll get into it. Just wow. What an unbelievable performance. Ed Straw of the race gave Lewis Hamilton a 10 out of 10 for the weekend. It's very hard to disagree, and I very rarely give drivers 10s. Yeah, um, and LaSalle as well. Shout out Max for doing what he did with a damaged car. But I, I couldn't even say there's a favourite at this point because Mercedes were using a borked engine in Qatar. They've got a fresh power unit to go into Corniche. So ugh, it's it's terrifying. I don't want this season to end. Gen- genuinely, the, the, it's not like the last few seasons have been bad or anything. But I think there's just, I think for firstly, the fact we've had a title battle between two drivers from two different teams and just seeing the dynamic of that has been so exciting. But the fact that it is ebbing and flowing constantly and the fact is going into Corniche like this weekend, I'm saying, oh, Corniche looks like it's going to be a Mercedes track. But we've been proven wrong on that Mercedes Red Bull track thing so many times this season. The momentum has been swinging like right now. I think just let's just go back to Brazil, I guess, right now, because Mexico wasn't really necessarily the most inspiring race of all time. But it seems leaving Mexico that. Max Verstappen, who I think was, I think at that point, about 21 points ahead in the championship. It seems leaving Mexico that Verstappen pretty much had it all, that he was going to win the championship, that there seemed like nothing that could stop him. Then going into Brazil, of course, we see the pace of the Mercedes in practice. We see the qualifying as well. We then obviously have all the controversy over the rear wing, which I'm sure we'll come on to, but just seeing the way that that momentum has changed. Do you really see this now as Lewis Hamilton's championship to lose where the momentum's gone to? I was watching the race live with a lot of people on various social medias and the consensus actually after the Brazilian Grand Prix was, yeah, Hamilton's probably going to win this championship now because it just looks as though the car momentum, so to speak, like the Mercedes does look like the fastest car now, which it hasn't done since realistically Portimao, Catalonia part of the season. Um, it's, it's kind of amazing how well Lewis has been able to hang in there with what has been the second fastest car. His performance in Mexico, incidentally, really, really impressive, especially to hold off local, the local boy, Sergio Perez, with a much faster car in the last few laps. But yeah, coming out of that Brazilian Grand Prix, I know there's... But basically, assuming Max continues his thing of either finishing first, second or not at all, if you're going by Max finishing second, Lewis does need to win the last couple of races. But first of all, these are new tracks because bear in mind Abu Dhabi, they've made some punitive changes to try and correct the lack of racing there. So by all intents and purposes, new tracks, you only need to look at the last two years to see what Lewis's record is at make way or replacement races and just how dominant he is on new tarmac like if that alone would swing the pendulum in the direction of lewis um but but again i don't want to call it like a couple of, like when we recorded the last podcast you asked me which way i was going i didn't really know then um i'm just glad that at least so far that retirement that's been worrying me between either car hasn't happened but there's still two races for it to happen so we can't we can't rule it out just yet but i mean this reminds me a lot of 2016 actually and obviously i'm hoping the end result in 2016 is different but i just remember after suzuka 
just how out of it Lewis Hamilton seemed, both on and off the track as well. I remember that press conference where he was just doing Snapchats and using going through filters with Carlos Sainz and just seeming so disinterested. But then all of a sudden, the last four races of the season, Lewis Hamilton puts in four just incredible performances to really stake his claim as someone who could easily have been a champion that season. Obviously, had he not had as difficult a start to 2016, had his engine not blown in Malaysia, perhaps, then those four last four races would really have counted for something. These last few races can count for Lewis Hamilton. If we have a fantastic final four again and Lewis ends up as champion, I think it is certainly quite a well-deserved championship. But let's go back to Brazil because Brazil was... I'm going to go as far to say, I mean, there's been some fantastic races this season. Obviously, we've spoken a lot about the race at the Hungaro Ring, which I know is one that I think we both loved. Silverstone as well, I think, was a really good race. That Obviously, Lewis Hamilton closing in on Charles Leclerc and passing him at the end of the race there. But Brazil as a race, as a weekend in general, I think it's it's hard to say that this wasn't the best of the season so far not just in terms of Lewis Hamilton's performance but in terms of just the overall action as well just how good is an F1 fan for for a lot of people perhaps who are listening and don't I think just realize how fantastic it is as super fans to see a race as good as Brazil just put it into emotions just what that weekend was like we knew it was going to be good because Brazil always is. Like as a title deciding venue, it has always delivered. It's why it's so sad the, se- the season no longer ends in South America. Um, but yeah, just the thing is, we have been spoiled this year. Like oh. 2021 has been, we've had good races at Catalonia, at Paul Ricard, at Sochi. Like these should not be possible by any conventional logic. We've had all of them. And yet... I agree with you. I think Brazil is on another level compared to anything else this year. The thing is, is that it, it kind of goes against your ideas of fairness because you know, is it fair that Lewis Hamilton has to start at the back because of something that really isn't his fault? Well, well, you can argue that maybe it isn't fair, but it made the sprint a hell of a lot more interesting. Is it fair that Max Verstappen is allowed to run Lewis Hamilton off the road and not get a penalty, so Lewis has to get by him organically? No, it isn't fair, but it means you get on-track racing and the actual end result is even better. Like, even if you're going to criticise the FIA about it, it was like they were designing a weekend to just be perfect box office. And it's, it's almost one of those, what I like to call Netflix weekends, where... Those rare weekends where it seems like one driver is being cast as the privileged villain versus the underdog. And Lewis was definitely the latter, starting literally from the back in the sprint race, mid-table in for the actual race. And yet by, by lap, the end of lap one, he was, what, sixth? Starting in like 10th, making up four places on the opening lap. Who are you? 2020 Antonio Giovinazzi? Like, just unbelievable. It, it, it is remarkable. And I think really following on from that as well, like, I mean, Netflix, literally, I feel they could literally just put a weekend on a bit like Italy 2020, like the whole Monza race. I feel this is one that they could drag out quite a lot. But yeah, let's go back to Lewis Hamilton now quickly. We, of course, did that um, episode a couple of months ago where we were ranking Lewis Hamilton's 100 best victories. And I think it's fair to say, forget Silverstone 2008, forget Turkey 2020, forget Germany 2018. This race was the whole weekend from Lewis Hamilton. Obviously, as you mentioned, obviously his disqualification from qualifying, which of course, having secure pole, 
losing the opportunity to get the points in the sprint race, but coming back to pick up what many construed as the one of the most unlikely wins of Lewis Hamilton's career. Just how just how good was Lewis Hamilton? Because there, are there I don't think there is any other driver in F1 history, Schumacher, Senna, Prost, Lauda, Clark, Fangio. I don't think there is anyone who could have done what Lewis Hamilton did that weekend. Well, certainly not in those cars. Um, it, it, oh, it's just absolutely crazy. Just watching back through those highlights and just how effortlessly he's able to get past every single driver. And I heard someone, probably a Max Verstappen fan, criticising him. It's like, oh, all the overtakes are into the same corner or at the end of straights. It's like, if you watch Formula One over the last 20 years, that's kind of how it goes. Um, I don't know if I'd put it as his all-time number one win, what I would say, though, is it it is his all-time number one weekend. Like, in qualifying, he was absurd, even by comparison to Bottas, who had the same car. In the sprint, he made a sprint race interesting. Sorry, he made sprint qualifying interesting. That shouldn't be possible, but Lewis did it. And then in the race, just the first lap alone was next level. And then just dispatching people after that. For me, the most impressive part of the race isn't even the battle with Verstappen. It's not even that first lap, despite mentioning it a couple of times. It's how once he got past Verstappen, he just drove off into the distance. Like the DRS is so powerful at Brazil. Max should not have struggled to stay on the back of him. And yet Lewis in that W12 just drove off into the sunset and picked up what is, again, a 10 out of 10 victory. and one of the best drives of the season from any driver. Yeah, there's no doubt about that whatsoever. For me, I think the best move of the weekend, and perhaps I think the move that really showed his intent, of course, um, his move on Lando Norris at, at the end of the sprint race was just, I think, it's just a reminder, I think, of that real intent that Lewis Hamilton has always had, that ability to, A, make the overtakes when he has to, and B really do it in a way that just obviously gets them done, but obviously aggressively, but knowing that he won't crash into other drivers as well. It's a, it's a thing that perhaps Lewis Hamilton early on in his career, when he sort of would have made perhaps some of those more rash overtakes, they always wouldn't have come off, but it's a mark of how far he's come that he does these overtakes now. And you expect that you just know that they're going to be done cleanly, that he's going to get through. And that is just really the mark of just why Lewis Hamilton is one of, if not the greatest drivers of all time. But moving on now to Hamilton for Stappenbatten. And I, I guess this is where we're going to bring our first, um, I wouldn't say complaint into the FIA, but our first under the spotlight moment of the FIA in this podcast. And there's going to be quite a few of them. I can assure you of that. Um, the penalty, lap 48. Um, wh- why do you, I'm, I'm going to put it this way. Why do you think the stewards? didn't give what was a clear penalty? I don't know, is the simple answer. It's either maximising the race entertainment because they knew that there would be a great battle, or I just simply don't know because there's no way. They they say, oh, we're relying on you know, the, the cameras of the steering angles. You can see what's going on from the wide angle. Like Max isn't making Max Verstappen down the inside, pushing Lewis Hamilton out. Max isn't making that corner. Never mind Lewis. So he's clearly he's driving himself off the track and someone else off the track. There's actually in sort of the mid phase of the accident, there's a fantastic piece of evasion from Lewis, without which he would have gone into the side of Max's car. And by, by, by like 
I would guess probably have damaged Lewis's car more actually in those circumstances. Mm. So it was a clear aggressive defensive move from Max, well beyond the limits, I should argue, of what's um, of what's legal in Formula One. For me, it's not the lack of a penalty that bothers me; it's the lack of an investigation. Like within a lap or so, the, the, the stewards just decided, no, we're not we're not going to investigate this. And you're like, why? We've had so many replay angles already. The, it, it does, if you're if you're arguing, you know, championship circumstances don't matter. We're going to officiate all incidents as the same. Then how can you justify giving Sergio Perez and Lando Norris penalties back in Austria for more or less holding their line, and you're not going to do anything for Max Verstappen in this circumstance? And aside from how aggressive the move was, what gets me is just how goddamn naive it is. Like. It's lap 48. You really think you're going to be able to do the same thing to keep Lewis Hamilton behind you for the next 24 odd laps? No way is that going to happen. And by the way, in Max's position, the best thing he can do if he can't hold Lewis back is let him through. Because if you do something like that and get a penalty, all of a sudden you bring Valtteri Bottas into the occasion and he, right up towards the end of the race, was closing on Max hand over fist. Absolutely. I mean, in many ways, yeah, Max Verstappen should have got that penalty, would have finished behind Bottas, given how much Bottas was closing up. I think that you're right. The thing that frustrates, I think, a lot of people here was not just the fact there was no penalty, the fact there was no investigation, the fact the stewards almost gave Verstappen a free pass there. And I mean, you saw it in Losile when you had Daniel Ricciardo and Charles Leclerc at the press conferences saying, based upon the way that this incident has been treated and the way the stewards have dealt with it, we're going to change our styles now because in terms of how we race with drivers are going on the outside, if they're not going, to, if they're not going to, you know, ha- punish people for doing that, then what, why do they have to follow the rules as they see it? And when you've got drivers saying that because of an incident, because of an interpretation, we're going to change our driving styles to respond to this. You know, if I was Charles Leclerc and I then got a penalty, for doing this, I would feel really aggrieved at that point. And it is, I think, just the fact that when you've got drivers saying that, the stewards need to clearly respond to us. But it almost feels like the FIA have just kind of tried to brush this one off. I don't know if this is just because it's a close championship. They don't want to be seen to intervene in it too much. But they haven't. the FIA haven't really handled themselves well over the last couple of races. Again, as well in Qatar. And I think this is another frustrating thing for me in particular. And this is something we've seen over the years, but I think has really been taken quite to the extremes in the last couple of races is the length of time for which the FIA make their decisions. And it seems now that particularly where the top two are concerned, you're waiting a whole day for the FIA to make a decision on what are in the case, certainly in the case of um, Qatar with the yellow flags, a pretty simple fact that if you see a yellow flag, you have to slow down and respond to that. So why do you think the FIA are taking so long? Do you think the title battle is influencing the way they're making decisions and the decision that they come to? There is a part of me that thinks it is, you know, we need to make sure the decision is correct. We need to go through everything, you know, tight as a submarine as many times as possible. And I can understand why that would be a motivation. However, and it wasn't just LaSalle, it was also Interlagos. You think about the, the the decision to disqualify Lewis and all the technical investigations, the decision to find Max for touching cars, breaking Park Fermé rules, all of that. 
those decisions took a really long time as well. And over the course of those days, I was constantly joining like chat rooms and message boards and stuff talking about this. And it just felt like they were trying to create a circus for the whole weekend. Like, again, it's one of those things where their mistakes have given us more entertainment, you could argue. But it's the end like result Netflix is that, yeah. Just in the steward's room. They had a producer oh, yeah. you in can, there. Just like Mike, Michael Massey's there about to make a decision and Netflix producer holds a pistol to his head. <laughs> no, you hold off on this until tomorrow morning because you've just got rooms full of idiots like me all around the globe talking about a penalty that hasn't even been given yet will it be given what are the implications if we were if we were advertising it is free advertising let's think about it that way mm. i mean charlie would never have done this i would i'd like to think not no he'd have just he'd have handed down a penalty which half the fan base would have hated and then just hid from any criticism yeah i mean it's no i mean the fia have had controversy over the, over the last few years over the last decades and stewards have always been something that you either love or hate, love to hate, hate to love, that kind of thing. But it does feel that when you're particularly, when you're in the middle of a tight championship battle in the middle of a close race as well, that the fact that it takes so long sometimes these decisions, I mean, yeah, I understand that they have to take all the evidence in to make things right. But then when we were seeing like earlier on in the season, when we had Alex Albon's simulator lap to try and, get Lewis Hamilton a penalty over the, the collision at Silverstone. Like it's so it, pathetic, honestly, it, it, the whole, this, the whole thing. And it feels like the stewards, I don't know if teams feel they can take them for a ride a little bit here because of the way that decision-making has become very slow. It does seem at times very stagnated. And just the fact that it does, I don't know the the, the finality that you used to get from the stewards decisions Sure, you can appeal them, but there doesn't seem to be that same finality there at the moment in Formula One. And obviously, from a side of safety in particular, you need to have the stewards' decisions being respected and being acted upon by the drivers because at the end of the day, they're there to maintain safety. So what what do you think, really, I guess, from the side of the FIA, but also the teams and drivers as well? What do you think they can do? to try and sort this out because it's clear that there are issues with the stewards and it can potentially have some quite dangerous implications. The main issue that I've, that I've seen with stewarding this year isn't so much that they get the decisions wrong. It's the sheer inconsistency with which they make those decisions. Brazil and Austria feel like different motorsports, quite frankly, forget about different races, but how can you expect the stewards to be consistent when the stewards in person are inconsistent. We don't have permanent stewards. They change every single race weekend. And a lot of these decisions are actually passed down by them. It's not passed down by race director Michael Marcy. So, you know, that's, I've, I've seen a lot of arguments in the past for permanent race stewards, the same crew going to every single race weekend. I've not really tried to argue the case against it, but I've, you know, I've acknowledged that this is the status quo. I'm now really struggling to think of a reason why you should not be employing permanent stewards at these venues because the inconsistency with which these these decisions have been made this year, like if this was a legal proceeding, you'd have no idea mm. what leg you are or aren't standing on. I mean, I would say I can see the advantage to having a fresh pair of eyes on things, certainly. And maybe I don't know if you can have like a hybrid. You have 
some permanent stewards. Say so maybe if you've got the panel of four stewards, you have two that go to every race. And then maybe you have one of them be sort of just an FIA appointee, one of them be a driver. And then you have two other stewards, maybe like a local driver or a driver with expertise. Mm. And again, maybe someone as well, the other steward being someone who knows the track or knows that country's kind of motorsport. Though More importantly, they just know the track and obviously where drivers could be like taking advantage, for example, particularly with things like track limits. So just you have that varied kind of local expertise, but again, that consistency that comes from a regular FIA team. I mean, there's, pl- there's plenty we can be talking about on that. But of course, I guess really one reason the stewards' decisions have been so much at the forefront is because they have very much been at, really at the forefront in the heat of this quite hot championship battle, it has to say. I've, we've seen a lot of fantastic title battles over the years, many of which have had the stewards' rooms come into it quite a bit. But this title battle, forget it being hot, it's an inferno. It is so tense that just just in terms of other championship battles, and I know this is a debate that a lot of people have been having, where do you put the Hamilton-Verstappen title battle? Number one of all time, honestly. Why so? I didn't see. I didn't think this until recently, and I heard, I'll credit his name, Royfield Brown came up with this argument, is that we talk about, Prost versus Senna, Schumacher versus Hill to a lesser extent, and Hunt versus Lauda. With all of those, you never really got wheel-to-wheel racing. In a lot of these eras, by the way, the cars would often just explode 30 laps in, and that completely skewed the direction of multiple championships. Renault would probably have five championships in the 1980s if their cars didn't explode every other lap. So, you know, even on the reliability front, these are the most reliable cars there have ever been. I'm very happy that this year touch wood, there have been no races decided by reliability. Baku, the tyre exploding, is a little bit different to that. So on that front, it's been a more organic battle. Secondly, we have had that wheel-to-wheel racing so often. We've had races like like France, for example, where you've got a faster car closing in and having to make that move. You've had races like you know Brazil, Silverstone, where we've seen what happens when the two go head-to-head. Other races like Catalonia, they didn't make contact at all. We've had genuine long stat long running portions of the season where there have been wheel to wheel racing and i know it this kind of applies to the whole field not just the top 2 the overall quality of races i thought 2020 was fantastic as i said earlier we had a good race at Sochi Autodrome this year we had a good race at La Castellet we had a great race in Catalonia like all of these things the thing that was missing from 2020 was a title battle. We haven't had a title battle for several years, since 2016, really. This isn't just a title battle. This is between two different manufacturers. You go back into the past, that battle between Prost and Senna, they were teammates in 1988. They were teammates in 1989. The dynamics now are just so much different because not only have you got these two very different personalities, you've got two very different personalities running the team. Like, you've got... Toto Wolf hamming down his big, to quote my friend, big daddy fist, just like running it the old fashioned way. And then you've got Christian Karen Horner complaining about even the slightest little thing backed up by his little friend, Jonathan Webb over the team radios. Like in terms of entertainment, it's so much clearer than it's been in the past. I didn't want to say it was number one, but when Royfield made those arguments, I'm like, yeah, I, I really can't think of anything that comes this way. And we've had so many more races to enjoy it in as well. 
Yeah, I mean, it's, it, it is hard, to, I think, to potentially argue against it. And I think now, because now I, this is the first time I've heard that argument. And you think, I think even I'm being swung a little bit by it, because I think certainly, I mean, Prost Center, I think the thing that gave that its Hollywood kind of atmosphere, shall we say, I think was definitely just their complete acrimony within McLaren. And the fact, obviously, I think just the fact Ron Dennis was getting involved in that as well, I think just added a whole extra level of sort of heat and acrimony into that battle. But I think certainly, particularly when you look at like Suzuka 89 going into 1990, and then just again, the total collapse of that going into Suzuka there. And obviously the first lap crash there, like it felt at times that there was something very dangerous potentially brewing between the two of them. And you do feel that a little bit with Hamilton and Verstappen. Like the, the rate, the, the thing is, this is the title battle that we have been hyping up for the last few years now. But ever since Verstappen went to Red Bull, ever since he's kind of made that his team, this is the battle we've been looking forward to. And when you put a driver as good as Lewis Hamilton up against a driver as good as Max Verstappen, you know, Verstappen will be a world champion. He will be a multiple world champion in the next few years. But even if he doesn't win it this season, just the fact that he has gone toe to toe with Lewis Hamilton, there's no doubt. I think this season has proved just how great he is as well. And I think just to see them really passionately going for the title, seeing them as well, just the heat that has just gone into this over the last few races. Like I don't, I can't think of anything in Formula One that has become so acrimonious and so quickly, I think, as this has this season. And I, I mean, the thing is, the only thing I would say that he, that Verstappen and Hamilton aren't going to do is crash into their title rivals, Ala Schumacher. But even so, yeah, I, th- I think you're starting to bring me round to this now. Like it has, it, it has just been one for the ages. I would love to have seen Netflix though cover 1989 and 1990. Like that would have been something to behold. With the two cameras covering the whole field. Yeah, good oh. luck. <laughs> splice in footage from two years. Mind you, they already do that. Um, but yeah, just one final thing before we move on. What, something I don't like, but has made it better, is F1 Twitter. Um, since the advent of Drive to Survive, Formula 1, like the amount of people following it, especially stateside, has ballooned massively. And as a result, the amount of inane Formula 1 tweets and fandoms has grown massively. Now, I don't like any of them. I don't really consider myself to be a part of them. I, I kind I hate the fact that when anything happens between these two, I get a wall covered of hashtag LH44s or MV33s. But it makes it more exciting, right? It means even the slightest thing holds just so much more importance. Where it's like, you go back to two th- year 2000, it's like, oh, yeah, Twitter, oh, imagine if Twitter was around, oh, M- Mika Hakkinen's just taken 1.8 out of Schumacher on the last lap. It's like, Joe, no one cares. No one watches this sport. Watch the Premier League, for God's sake. The the growth of Formula One's fan base, completely independent of this season, by the way, has accidentally made the season have even higher stakes than were possible. And I tell you what, whatever Netflix paid for the rights to do Drive to Survive, they will, this year, they will be rubbing their hands in glee. Oh, I can't wait to see it when it comes out in March. Everyone like literally getting Netflix out, starting to watch Drive to Survive and be like, oh, this Formula One thing's really good. And I've been like, yes, I've been telling you this for the last year and you've been ridiculing me. Like gen- genuinely, I've had so many people say, oh, Formula One, not really worth it. And now all of a sudden, 
everyone's like, oh, the best thing ever. So yeah, Netflix, we have you to thank for this. But yeah, I think we can agree to that. Twitter makes everything better. No doubt about that. It's an awful thing (laughs) and it's terrible, but it makes everything better through exclusively negative means. That is is the nature of modern Formula One. But speaking of the nature of modern Formula One, we're going to move on to some of the other battles very quickly. But Joe, I have to ask you, I know you don't want to call the championship, but with two races to go, I'm going to ask you to call the championship. Who is going to win? Current gap is eight points. I've got Lewis winning in Jeddah. I think Lewis is going to do it. I really think he's going to do it. I'm... Is my, the fact I'm a Lewis Hamilton fan maybe influencing this decision? Possibly. Let's go with the Lewis Hamilton victory and just pray to God that no one's engine blows out in the last two races because that that is not how we want this championship to end. But let's move on now to some of the other battles because, of course, we've very much been Hamilton for Stappen focused of late, but there's so many other exciting battles moving down the grid. So let's go to McLaren versus Ferrari now. Uh a battle for the ages for a battle of the best for the rest. It was put by the race earlier this week. Um, Marinello have had a bit of an ascendancy over the last few races. Ferrari, who seem to have kind of just been settling into a pretty secure fourth. The last few races, the Claire and Sainz have really picked up in that battle compared to Lando Norris and Daniel Ricciardo. Indeed, both the Claire and Sainz, with, from having had Lando Norris fighting at one point with Perez and Bottas for third, He's now under pressure to keep fifth from Leclerc and Sainz. What have Ferrari done so well in the last few races that McLaren haven't? It all comes from that new powertrain, doesn't it? You, we saw like the dynamics begin to change around Sochi in the Turkish Grand Prix. Sochi could have been so much better, incidentally. You had Leclerc coming through the field in that unexpectedly great race. He ultimately got caught out by the rain. But then at Istanbul, we really got to see what this Ferrari power unit could do in the back of Sainz's car. And all of a sudden, you're like, have Ferrari got the best power unit on the grid again, maybe legally this time? Like it has, I don't think the the customer teams are using it as well. So there's a real gulf in straight line performance between the Ferrari and the Ferrari shod cars lower down as well. I love to see um, Nikita Mazepin bombing down the straight with that on. He can't take it, Captain. It's too <laughs> fast. It's like I I, I mean he I mean Daddy bought him a new chassis. He could possibly buy him a new engine as well. Um, but yeah, the, the thing is, is like. McLaren, there's an argument to say earlier this year, especially in the case of Lando Norris, they had the third best package, but they were also outperforming that third best package. So not only were McLaren better than Ferrari, they were doing better than expectations. Now their car is arguably weaker since this new power unit's come in, um, but they're also not performing as well. Like the point differential over the last three races is absurd. It's somewhere in the region of like 40, 50 points they've dropped. Yeah, to Ferrari just over these last, just over this triple header. Um, so it's now McLaren are slower and they are underperforming relative to expectations. Think about Norris's instant with science on the opening lap at Brazil, Ricciardo being Daniel Ricciardo 2021 to the extreme. Like the circumstances have switched around. Like you could argue in the early stages of the season, Ferrari probably had the fourth fastest car, but it didn't really look like it a lot of the time. Um, especially at races where Gasly was just dragging the Alpha Tauri like mad. And that would be my final point, actually. The race did a really good analysis about this. The, the, it's not just Ferrari and McLaren battling for third fastest car. Alpha Tauri over the last few races have been so goddamn close, even with Sonoda in the second car. 
And it means that even if AlphaTauri are nowhere near this battle for third in the championship, it means you've got at least one car and two in Qatar that can disrupt the battle for third. You know, third is a really big deal in Formula One because if you get it, you're finishing fifth and sixth effectively. However, if you have a car in between you and that and a couple of midfielders overperforming, all of a sudden you're on the edge of the points. And if you look at Lando's last few races, that is precisely where he's been. Yeah, and I mean, going back to that analysis quickly, that it put, I think the McLaren, Ferraris, and the Alfa Tauri is all within a tenth of a second. And it's that that I think really does show, obviously, the pressure that they've all been under. And the fact that, yeah, you do have Pierre Gasly, you ha- do have particularly Alonso as well from Alpine being that disruptor. And I mean, it seems certainly after Monza, and I know we said this at the time, that after Monza, McLaren had taken this fantastic haul of points, that they seemed set for third in the championship. But it seemed that that race had pulled them over. But obviously we've seen the powertrain from Ferrari that has caught them up as well. But do, do you think this is just a case of bad luck for McLaren? Because I'd say to a certain extent it is bad luck if you look at some of the first up incidents that they've suffered. But equally, is it an aspect of strategy as well? Particularly if you look at um, Lando Norris in Qatar and some of the tyre calls that McLaren were making there. But... I'd say perhaps as well, do you think McLaren are just moving forward to 2022 that maybe they counted their chickens a bit too early and moved on to 2022 a little bit too early there? I know a lot of quote unquote papaya army soldiers and they're arguing that, although I don't actually know if that's true or if they're just trying to cover their back of about Ferrari whooping their backsides all of a sudden. Um, I suspect it probably is. Like I, I know Ferrari are working hard on next year's car, but they can afford to do that and upgrade their power unit, which, by the way, continues on to next year. So the power unit upgrades, they don't just help the 2021 car, they help the 2022 car as well. And obviously, McLaren are customers. It's not like they can suddenly you know, drum up a power unit upgrade out of nowhere. That's what Mercedes have been desperately trying to do all year to close the gap on Red Bull. So I think it's just a case of, First half of the season, they had the third fastest car. Second half of the season, they've had the fourth, sometimes the fifth. The drivers haven't overperformed to the same extent, especially not in the case of Norris. They're going to end up fourth. Not, But I'll be honest, even if they finish fourth behind Ferrari, and at this point it looks like they will, I would argue they've been more impressive this year to finish fourth than last year to finish third, especially considering how bad Ferrari were. Yeah, I mean, I have no doubt about that at all. And I think particularly, I think last year they benefited, I think, from just the fact that the midfield was so inconsistent in terms there was never really a sure racing point had the third fastest car. It's just the two drivers didn't always finish in that position where they should have been, particularly Sergio Perez at the start of that season. Lance Stroll being Lance Stroll, you couldn't expect him to be consistently performing as that car should be. Whereas for McLaren, they did had, again, Sainz and Norris both picked up. Well, Norris had a fantastic start to the season, fell off a bit. Sainz really picked up as the season went on. And so that did it for McLaren last year. But obviously, I think considering Daniel Ricciardo's not been at his best in the McLaren, I think the fact that they've been there, obviously we've seen some fantastic performances from Norris. So clearly he's putting, they've they've put in all the more, yeah, you're right, more impressive performances this year than they did in 2020 but I think it is just that growth of Ferrari and I just to finish on the McLaren Ferrari section the Claire and Sainz a lot of people have rated as the best driver lineup on the grid this year indeed if you look at the driver lineups that have been confirmed for next year um the Claire and Sainz the race did an analysis and behind um 
Hamilton and Russell, which seemed to be pretty much everyone's favourite driver lineup. Leclerc Sainz was consistently the second best lineup on the grid. Ferrari really do have themselves two fantastic drivers that we've seen on so many occasions. So do you think perhaps it's not just the upgrades that the car have had as well, but the fact that Leclerc and Sainz have been so consistent throughout the season as well, that has allowed Ferrari to take advantage of this upgrade that they've got now? I mean, I've seen a lot of people criticising Charles Leclerc um, this year, and I really don't understand why, because low-key, he's been fantastic again. It's just people have taken him for granted after just how goddamn incredible he was last year. The upgrade from Vettel to Science is something I hadn't, I'd kind of forgotten about, and you're right to bring it up as well, because even though I'm still of the opinion that Leclerc is clear of Sainz, um, the gap is certainly a lot lower than it was last year. My, My final thing would be, I really would not put Hamilton and Russell that far clear. Maybe I'd put them just clear of um, Charles and Carlos. But if you were to ask me going into next year, I think I would, I might actually argue the Ferrari lineup is the best in terms of drivers. It's just a shame that it's a regulation change and Ferrari and regulation changes go together like slugs and salt. Yeah, I mean, I'd say I'd say the exact same thing. I was expecting to go into that article with the Claire and Science as the top partnership just because they're, they're two reasonably young drivers still, even though Science is, I think, is getting into his late 20s now. They're consistent. They're quick. And I think with George Russell, I think, sure, he's going to do fantastically at Mercedes next year. But I think we just need to see him performing a bit more consistently, I think, just to get a sense of really just how good he is. But yeah, the Claire and Science are known consistent quantities. And I would, I think any team, the fact that they're just in that Ferrari at the moment, put them in a Mercedes, put them in the Red Bull even, they'd be well clear of, of their rivals right now, even regardless of Lewis Hamilton. And I think that that just, I think just says a lot about just how good those drivers are. But another driver who has been really good, we've touched upon him, Pierre Gasly. Now, this Alpine Alpha Tauri battle really confuses me because if you look at where Pierre Gasly is in the standings, Alpine should be a clear fifth fighting for third. Yet they're in sixth, and after Qatar, all hopes of fifth seem to have gone. What, what, what's going on there, Alpha Tauri? Because Pierre Gasly's out. Is he out driving the car? Is Yuki Tsunoda significantly underdriving the car? I'd say yes to both. Or do you think that Alpha Tauri have let arguably their best chance to get, I would say, fourth or fifth in the Constructors' Championship just slide? Qatar was a disaster. There's no other way of putting it. I, even though they were starting on soft versus the mediums of like the Mercedes and the Red Bulls, there is just no excuse for how Alpha Tauri dropped off in that race. With Gasly, I think it's pretty clearly to do with pit strategy. They pitted him far too early. The tyres were still doing okay because he wasn't in close proximity to any cars off the line. Like he let Verstappen go and Alonso got past and they drove off. It's not like he was in their dirty air overheating the tyres. For Sonoda, it's just another one of those weekends where it looks promising and then there's a session where it all goes wrong. I really can't explain how Yuki ended up that far behind because that weekend, you're right, the Alpha Tauri was the third fastest car. It was so far clear of the Ferrari and the McLaren that weekend. Um, 
I mean, the the answer is clearly to do with Yuki Tsunoda. Like the guy's 14 points behind Lance Stroll, who's been one of the biggest disappointments in F1 this year. Um, I would say that this is probably the hardest year there's ever been to be a rookie in Formula One. It's a long argument, so I won't make it right now. I just, I can't think of a year where it could be more difficult, especially being partnered against Pierre Gasly as well. But Yuki's Alex Albon syndrome, the inability to have just one weekend happen without any mistakes, without any problems, has really hurt that team. But as I've ranted about on Raw Sport and on here before, the strategy of AlphaTauri this year has just been so poor. Imola, the mistakes they made cost them realistically 10 points. And in Qatar, there is just no excuse. You have two cars in the top 10. Alpine, by comparison, are nowhere to you. And yet you come out of the race 25 points down on them in a championship fight for fifth and sixth as well. 25 points is nothing between first and second. Between fifth and sixth, it's absolutely miles. They can they can be very grateful that Aston Martin have been so bad this year because Alpha Tauri team-wise have been a massive letdown. Yeah, and I think just on that point of Yuki Tsunoda, and, he, and I mean, we were saying at the end of 2020, Yuki Tsunoda is a good driver. But we all uh, we doubted whether he was ready for Formula One. And particularly when you had Danny Kvyat, okay, wasn't having a great 2020, but was a driver who on his day could put in some fantastic performances. Just look at Imola 2020 for proof of what Danny Kvyat can do on his day. You equally had Alex Albon as well. And obviously the pressure he was under at Red Bull and a lot of people say, well, put Albon and Gasly in the car at Alpha Tauri, have them. Because it's not like Alex Albon's not a proven quantity in Formula One. Sure, he's not always delivered, but you know his 2019, particularly that first in Alpha Tauri, but then I say that second half of the season at Red Bull, showed he at least deserves a seat in Formula One. And it's good to have him back on the grid next year. But personally, I think he should have been in that Alpha Tauri this year, or and if not Alex Albon, Danny Kvyat, before you go to Yuki Tsunoda. And I think we've seen that in experience. Certainly if you look at Snowden's junior career, it's been okay. It's been nothing spectacular. He wasn't the most spectacular export that could have come out of Japan. He's did okay in F3. He overperformed, I would say, in F2. But I feel, I don't know if that overperformance in F2 perhaps is catching up with him this season. But going then into 2022, obviously the regulations could change a lot of things regarding car performance in the pecking order. But if AlphaTauri are in a similar position to what they are now next season, especially if the Honda engine, and we know obviously the Red Bull powertrains take that over, but the engines are being frozen after this season. So if the engines are similar, how what can AlphaTauri and Yuki Tsunoda in particular do to not be so inconsistent and make these same mistakes again next year? It all falls upon the car, really, and and how just how different these cars are next year. I mean, these are the probably the most difficult cars of all time to drive in Formula One. Just the sheer physicality of the G forces, the amount of aero grip going on. Hopefully, twenty twenty two is going to change that a little bit. But not only are they the most difficult car era, it's also the most difficult year of this era because it's the last one, and the cars are at their most difficult. Gasly's been in this team on and off for best part of four years now in that Alpha Tauri slash Toro Rosso. Yuki's coming up against him in literally his first year. With Sonoda, I think it was, they were trying to capitalise on momentum, weren't they? He never spent more than one year in any category, um, at least not for the last few years. Like he hasn't won championships. He's just come through as like best rookie or um, for F2, it would have been the Antoine Hubert award for best rookie. So 
it, it, the thing is, it's it's. But yeah, you can work on that momentum. You can get them to the top as quickly as possible. But because of the COVID situation in 2020, the F2 season was so compressed that this guy, who'd only been in Europe for one year, all of a sudden wasn't able to drive so many of the tracks that Formula One would normally go to. So he's only got experience at like six or seven. And then you stick him onto a calendar with 22 races. So not only is does he not know any of the tracks, he also hasn't got any time between races to practice because the, the season's just been so frenetic. Like I'm, I have been so critical of Yuki this year, as have a lot of people. I, for one, was really not impressed by him in Bahrain either, which everyone seemed to salivate over, making some easy overtakes on better tyres in a better car. But I'm prepared to let him have this year off because of just how awful the circumstances have been. I'm not prepared to give him any room next year, though. Like Especially- he would have been important in the development of that car. Especially when there are some promising juniors coming up through the Red Bull program. I mean, it's not the, I mean, the Red Bull program has in some ways dried up a little bit, but, you know, if Liam Lawson has a good F2 campaign next year, if Yuri Vips can somewhat live up to the expectation, if there are drivers, if Red Bull decides to go outside of their program again, they've shown they can do it with Perez, and arguably the merits of that have been proven. If they do need to do that, it's not like there's not a lot of talent in F2 that they can turn to. I'm just thinking, obviously, Robert Schwartzman, obviously a Ferrari um, Academy product this year. Um, someone else who was right at the top of my Oscar Piastri. And there's, we, we can move on to Oscar Piastri very shortly. But again, there's clearly a lot of talent that Red Bull could feel like they could try and pick up and integrate into the program. So what? And I know it's not a Red Bull thing to do, but. It may, it may be something they'll consider if Sonoda just doesn't live up to the deal. But let's go to Alpine now, because I have been... The thing that's impressed me most about Alpine this season, they know they don't have the one of the five top half fast cars of the grid this year. Arguably, I would say they, at times, have the seventh fastest car on the grid behind even Aston Martin. But the teamwork that that team has. And I, I remember saying this back in January about you have to look to Suzuki and MotoGP to see the impact that David Brivio had on that team there. And particularly the way that he made it a much more cohesive unit that was able to outperform what it previously could have thought possible based upon obviously the way the cars have been developed, but bring that team together. The way that it seems Brivio has had an impact or there's been something at Alpine this year Fernando Alonso, the typically feisty, tempestuous driver, hasn't been that kind of same self. And the allegations he's been very self-interested in the past hasn't really been something that's been followed through this year. But him and Esteban Ocon, again, showing they know how to work well together as a team, has arguably got Alpine to where they are. So, yeah. Joe, what what have you made of Alpine? Because I would say they are a well-deserved fifth, not for the car, but for the team and for the drivers. I mean, as a constructor, I've actually been very disappointed because unlike Aston Martin, the regulations haven't directly affected them and has made made what was otherwise a top midfield car into a pseudo backmarker where the, there is genuinely a risk it goes out in Q1. The thing with the Alpine is that, I mean, you could see this even as early as Bahrain. I was looking at Fernando Alonso driving. It's like the car is really tricky to drive, or at least it was at the early stages of the season. I come at this, I think, from a very different angle to you, and that's because I've heard from someone who used to work at Enstone about the current situation at Alpine, and it's awful, 
to say the very least. You've got like people leaving the company left, right, and center. You've talked about Davide Brivio. I can't really speak to how I can't really see how he's been a positive influence on them this year. And there's actually a very good chance he leaves to go back to Suzuki next year. Hence, that's where all these Otmar Zafnauer rumors came in as a new team principal for next year. Whether or not that happens, it's like it's just it pours more fuel on the fire of what the mess currently is at Endstone. And the thing with Fernando Alonso is he's not come back to Formula One for this year, is my argument. He's come back to try and win his third world championship, helped along by regulation changes that Alpine could nail. I don't see anything from what I've heard behind the scenes that suggests that that team are going to make progress next year. And I guarantee goddamn to you, if Alpine put out an awful car next year, Fernando Alonso is not going to be the happy-go-lucky old, you know, senior driver that he has been this year. He will be furious because he has come back to Formula One for next season. Mm. And if there are a lot of us saying that actually Alpine, it, if Williams had improved next year, if Haas improved next year, hard to believe right now, but they could, <laughs> it's actually going to be Alpine that fall back because they're not an incredibly rich team. And also, you know, they're, they're called Alpine now. Renault had a five-year plan to get to the front in Formula One. It failed, and it feels like they kind of lost interest. So, yeah, they've 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 made the most of a bad situation this year. The teamwork between Ocon and Alonso, especially in Qatar and Hungary, above all else, has put the team where they are. And it's a teamwork that hasn't existed at AlphaTauri because Sonoda's half a minute back. But I would say that this is very much a lucky season for them. And going into next year, I am really worried about the situation for that team. I mean, yeah, obviously I, I don't I don't have the contact. So I feel I feel I feel quite enlightened in that regard. But yeah, I on track it there seems to be a lot of harmony. Tr- trusting in L plan is the is the way that it's been put. And speaking of um L plan, a lot of L plan seems to revolve quite a lot around um tire strategy. And Alpine, if we talk about luck, perhaps Fernando Alonso got very lucky that he was not one of four drivers to have a puncture at the low soil circuit. Now, not we, there's on terms of talking about the punctures, obviously we've seen a lot of p- punctures from these Pirelli tyres in the last few years. Just look at pretty much every race in Silverstone over the last decade. But for me, there was obviously not just the fact that obviously the tyres were put under a lot of strain um, throughout the race. And obviously the fact Pirelli didn't give them a high expect, high sort of tyre life expectation, but particularly the curbing at low soil seem to really do a lot of damage to the tyres. You only have to look at Pierre Gasly's um, incident at the end of Q3 to just see just how high the curbing was and how damaging that there was to the tyres, to the cars, to the floors, to pretty much everything there. And when we look at something like this, do you? how much blame do you apportion to Pirelli? How much blame do you apportion to Low Sile for what we saw last weekend? I do not apportion any blame to Pirelli whatsoever in this instance, and I have done in the past. But you know, they they, they build to they build to the consumer, like and when, and in the past, Pirelli have a recent history of being able to fix these things very quickly. They design these five different compounds of different different wear and different grip levels for the season. They design them for the tracks that are on the calendar. I'll remind you, LaSalle wasn't on the calendar at the beginning of the year. It's a nonsense makeway race because the Doha street circuit isn't built yet and you desperately want to race in Qatar for all the money. They didn't know about LaSalle. They didn't design any of these tyres with this ludicrously high 
completely flat, long, medium corners with these. It's a bike track, so the curbs aren't designed for cars. How many times I've had to say this over the last two weeks? It is a bike track. We should not be racing there. I mean, and then they come to the race and say, these hard tyres, I know they're the hardest compound, but we only think they're going to last about 30 laps around here before they're in danger of blowing. Yeah, let's run 40 laps on these tyres and see what happens. The, I don't blame Pirelli at all for this. They said, they gave their estimations, which I don't know how they make them, by the way, considering we've never raced at Lasile before. They were right. The data based on nothing that Pirelli had ended up being about 100%. After 30 laps, those tyres started to go. The teams, for some reason, thought, we can do better than this. Guess what? Multiple punctures all the way across the field. And talking about Alpine, Fernando Alonso, I hope he kissed Nicolas Latifi on the forehead after that race because Perez may have not been a threat, but a puncture certainly was in the last few laps. Yeah, absolutely. And it is that whole thing about the punctures because i feel pirelli have become the full guy throughout the last decade for pretty much all of formula one sills like aside aside from obviously the overtaking issues we've seen with the current set of cars who've become the other full guy but when it was before 2017 and drivers having to back off all the time and not really um race to the limit for um tire conservation then pirelli became the full guy for that but when they were told in the past oh well you need to make the tires a bit more you, you need tires that will wear out a lot quicker you need tyres that won't do that so we can have a bit few more pit stops, a bit more strategy, have more of that come into the race. Then you get the tyre blowouts. Then Pirelli become the full guy again. They're very convenient to blame. But I think you're right in the regards that they, 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 can't, they can't get the blame all the time, Pirelli. And with something like this, I think when, we, when we've seen a lot of these tracks, it was interesting on Mugello last year. And you think Lance Stroll had that tyre blowout going through the second Arabiata. And it is just the fact that perhaps maybe Formula One should be doing better if it has to bring like surrogate tracks onto the calendar or substitute tracks on. Maybe Formula One has to change its criteria because it's clear when these tyre blowouts have been happening and more at these new tracks that there's something there's something wrong there with the way Formula One's choosing their tracks. I mean... You just need to look at a track map of LaSalle to see the problem. It's not just that all the corners are sort of long, medium speeders that you can't go side by side through, and you're going to have a lot of wear on the tyres. The radius of every single corner at that track is fixed. Like, they don't tighten up or open up, so the the load on the tyre doesn't let up midway through a corner. It doesn't change at all. You've just got high pressure on them all the way through. Of course you're going to get blowouts. There's no other track on the calendar that's like this. Again, because Formula One is a sport for cars, LaSalle was designed for bikes. I have had to say this so many times to people over the last few weeks. Yeah, I mean, and literally, the fact that even just you look and you mentioned the overtaking problem earlier on in the race, I think we should be blessed we got one overtake, given that this was a bike track. Like, yeah. I know that's when it's like Silverstone, for example, when they made the change and they built that new section, this was a, to make it a bike friendly section when they still thought Silverstone was coming away. And I don't know if I'm hypothesizing that that might've been something that's contributing to the blowouts we're seeing at Silverstone in the last few years. But this I'm sure is something we can explore quite a lot more in depth, but time isn't of, or well, time is very much of the essence right now. Let's move on to Alfa Romeo. Um, we just one last topic, I guess, from all the multitude of stories we've seen over the last week. But Alfa Romeo have confirmed that Guan Yu Zhou 
will be racing for the team in the second driver's seat um, next season. Now, there's not much really more to say than Alfa Romeo apart from the fact that they are back markers on the grid right now and they're there. But certainly it was seen to be a battle, or I say a battle, a seat between Antonio Giovinazzi, who's in the seat right now, Guan Yu Zhou, who's got the seat, and Oscar Piastri, who was my, who is ahead in the F2 championship, very much seen as the favourite to take that. Now, Piastri is um, going to be the Alpine reserve driver now next season. We know that Giovinazzi is going off to Formula E. And of course, Guan Yu Zhou gets the seat. And with that, um, the first Chinese driver opening Formula One up more to that, that market there. But also, and we understand, we know that in September there were the rumours of $30 million worth of sponsorship going to Alfa Romeo. Of course, a team that hasn't been in the best financial situation over the last few years. Looking at this move for Guan Yu Zhou, and I don't want to take too much away from him because it's not like he's a bad driver, but I think this move has been made with more economic sense maybe more than driver capabilities given the other options available. Is that something you'd agree with? Yeah, I think it's perfectly fair. I mean, with Piastri in particular, you can see the trajectory he's going on. He's going as, he's an Alpine contracted driver, as is Joe, but they clearly believe in Piastri more because he is top of the F2 championship in his rookie year, won the F3 championship in his rookie year. And the plan is pretty clear. If Alonso decides that Formula One isn't for him because he can't walk his way to a third championship and he leaves, that seat becomes available. And unless something really mad happens with Pierre Gasly, Oscar Piastri can go straight into that seat. Like, there's an argument to say that Ocon isn't safe in the long term either with how he's performed this year. So again, that's two seats that could potentially be for Oscar Piastri in the long, in the short to medium terms. So but he's kind of okay. Um, the other driver that you didn't mention, maybe because it died so quickly, was Colton Herta, the IndyCar driver, who I believe has enough super license points to get into Formula One and in real terms is probably the best driver on the IndyCar grid. Um, and the theory was that if the Gainbridge Andretti takeover happened at, well, first of all, Joe would be out of the picture altogether because Andretti would be bringing in so much money that they wouldn't need the 30 million of Chinese and, sponsorship. And money. the Americans wouldn't conceive having a Chinese driver in the car. Well, they, the don't, they, don't seem, they don't seem to mind having a Russian flag on their car, but that's another <laughs> issue. Um, but yeah, so, I mean, Joe is a good driver by all mistakes. Like, I, I don't even think Nikita Mazepin is a bad driver, judging from his junior career. Joe is considerably better than him. He's actually been very good in Formula 2 this year. I didn't think he'd be anywhere near a championship battle. It's worth pointing out, it, you know, it's taken him three seasons to get to this kind of level, but, you know, it took Nick DeFries three years to win Formula 2 in a terrible season, and he's not in Formula 1. People get really angry about that. So, it's not, you know, it's not completely unforgivable that Guan Yu Zhou is in the sport. It's the same kind of deal with Latifi. He didn't win the championship. He brings in a lot of money. People have let Latifi get away with it as he's improved. I'm willing to give Guan Yu Zhou a chance. Um, the real story of this year for me has been trying to find excuses for Giovinazzi to stay and him single-handedly burning all of them. Because I've discovered that guy is capable of improving so much. Like Giovinazzi last year was the most improved driver on the grid. I'm absolutely convinced. All the things that he got right in 2020, he has gotten wrong in 2021. He is so frustrating as a driver. I can 100% see why they've decided. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, the whole Giovinazzi thing, and we've said this so many times, like it's Zanville, when he, you know, he had that fantastic qualifying and obviously his luck wasn't on his side there. But there have been these times from Giovinazzi where we've gone, 
here's the potential. He just needs to live up to it. And he just needs to live up to it consistently. And where that's not been happening, it's difficult to have him on the grid and to justify him keeping his seat when you've got all these fantastic junior drivers coming up. And I say, you're right. Granny Joe's not a bad driver. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying he's not the best compared to who could have come into that seat. And of course, there's many other drivers um, that could have been chosen. And I guess perhaps more of a, uh, more of the strategic Alfa Romeo relationship here, because of course there's traditionally in the last couple of years, been the Sauber seat that's been Kimi Raikkonen's and the Ferrari seat, which has been Antonio Giovinazzi's. Now, Valtteri Bottas is coming in from Mercedes. Guan Yu Zhou's coming in as the former Alpine back driver. And it seems that the Ferrari Academy, who've had Robert Schwartzman, um, Callum Eilot, who potentially come into that seat as well, they've sort of been, haven't really been under consideration really for this seat. So do you think this is a sign that Alfa Romeo are now moving away from Ferrari, even if they're keeping the Ferrari power unit, that as a team, they are moving away from them now. I mean, I think the answer to that's pretty simple. The going into next year, Ferrari did not have any say over one of the Alfa Romeo driver slots, which is the first time that's been the case since I believe Charles Leclerc um, yeah. was a rookie back, and that would have been yeah, that was Alfa Romeo's first year as being called Alfa Romeo and not Sauber. So yeah, I wouldn't be surprised in the short term if they stopped being called Alfa Romeo. They went back to Sauber because that's still the owner. It is still Sauber mm. now. They're still based in Switzerland. But yeah, Ferrari don't have a say anymore, and that's part of the reason ultimately why Giovinazzi's gone. And of course, with Mick Schumacher now on the grid, Ferrari have their junior, who they clearly believe in a bit more than a guy who admittedly whom I love Antonio Giovinazzi but he's had a lot of chances and yeah you can qualify as well as you like that team had one objective going into this year finish ahead of Williams if you look at the championship standings right now you will see just how catastrophically they have failed to do that yeah and with that the Italian Jesus memes are going to be dying at the end of this season and I will be I will be quite sad about that definitely but of course Whilst we talk about next season, we want to keep very much staying on the subject of 2021 because really we don't want to leave it behind. And we've talked about races that we've had low expectations for this season that have delivered some crackers. And Joe, of course, there's there's Saudi Arabia and the Jeddah Corniche circuit. It's fair to say we don't have a lot of high expectations for this race. So do you think perhaps in the spirit of 2021, we could be up? for our expectations being considerably exceeded. Yeah, I think so. like if, if LaSalle was able to be like a three or four out of 10 race, Jeddah can be a five in no small part because I mean, my rant at the beginning of the year when we didn't know where the DRS zones were, were because it didn't look like you could overtake anywhere. If anything, the last two DRS zones make overtaking insultingly easy hmm. at Jeddah and the pit straight's a lot longer than I thought it was. Admittedly, my only experience with it so far is in quote unquote simulators and the official F1 game, which is by no means a simulator, but it doesn't seem as awful to race on as I expected. Then again, I was also expecting it to be comfortably the worst track on the calendar. And I am really concerned about the first DRS zone, which has corners in it. Yeah, that they don't yeah. go together, funnily enough. You don't want to have an open rear wing going round. I mean, there, there was corners. a reason they banned it in the Monaco Tunnel back, back, back yep. in 2011. 
People think it's going to be like this incredibly fast switchback section with DRS open, loads of overtaking. No, it's going to be Marcus Ericsson going into the side of Monza in free practice and barreling over. That's what that's what a turn with DRS re- results in. Also, there isn't runoff here like there is at Monza. There's a lot of concrete walls. And although there are safer barriers around the place in a lot of like high contact areas, I'm really surprised this track has got grade one certification. Honestly, mm. considering the speeds you're heading, you're going through those switchbacks, concrete barriers all over the place. Jeddah is really confusing me. Yeah, and especially considering the fact that the, the, the barriers aside, considering Formula One, of course, has been pretty much tech pro central in terms of the, the safety barriers that have been used. And arguably, tech, you just have to look at some of the crashes we've seen, um, or particularly, I would say, go back just to the F2 crash um, last year at Sochi between. Um, with Jack Aitken there going through um, Jack Aitken and Luca Chiotto going through the tech pros at Sochi just to obviously see just how effective they've been. I mean, yeah, safer barriers. I mean, generally I'm not overly optimistic of the safety solutions that have been used in IndyCar over the years. So maybe putting them on the formula one stage, I don't know if that will change anything, but it's more the fact that the track hasn't really been ready that it has in true young am style, seemingly come together in the last couple of weeks and even then we're still not sure it's going to be ready in time i mean joe it's the fact that we're even now saying we can race here this weekend when we've been having doubts over it for the last few months i wouldn't say it's a fast necessarily but considering that you know saudi arabia have come into formula one and we know that they wanted to portray this image of a great track a great experience and you know a country that knows how to put on these high profile events it's not really lived up to that so far. It's been a real black mark on the end of this season, honestly. Just we've got, you know, this amazing championship battle. The slightest thing can swing it. They're finishing first and second, it seems, uh, you know, more or less every race. You know, there's the slightest thing. Let's keep this going for as long as possible. How many races have we got left? Um, two but one of them may not be ready in time. And just like, how can you legislate around this? How can you plan? It's like, I hear people saying, oh, you can just fly to Estoril and get a replacement race. No, you can't. You really can't. And you know, I'm, I'm grateful that the race is happening, A, because I just want more races, and B, because I want this championship decided as fairly as possible. I feel like cutting out Jeddah at this point would be pretty harsh on Mercedes, especially how much of their strategy has clearly been towards this incredibly power-hungry circuit. Um, Not power-hungry, that's the country. Power-dependent circuit of the Jeddah Corniche track. But um, yeah, I... What do, what do you want me to say, Cam? I don't like this track. I don't like the fact we're racing in Saudi Arabia. I don't like the fact that we're racing in a make-way track while they're building another stupid thing in Diria. And this track, despite being a street circuit, wasn't even ready. Like, I thought the whole idea of street circuits was that you're repurposing roads that already exist. No, they've had to build another track because they can't build another track in time. I don't like Jeddah. I didn't want to race here. That, that's all I can say. Well, we are racing here and hopefully our expectations may be slightly exceeded on that point. And of course, at the end of the season, obviously not just, and we've spoken about this previously, not just for the um, the racing itself and the fact that there's three tracks that aren't haven't had, well, low style has underwhelmed in many regards. Jeddah doesn't have high expectations. and Abu Dhabi has never been a fan favourite in terms of good racing. But of course, going to... Um, 
Qatar, Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates. And of course, a lot of the controversies over human rights in those countries as well. And we saw Lewis Hamilton and Sebastian Vettel in particular, both make a real emphasis on pointing out, obviously, these human rights concerns in Qatar. There's no confirmation over whether they'll be doing it again in Saudi Arabia and again in the UAE. But um, one thing I've always I've noticed is that obviously, and I say particularly since 2020, that Formula One and Formula One drivers in particular have been, as is a general trend, I think, across sport, have been speaking out a lot more about social causes and really taking that opportunity to use their voice and use their profile. And as we're obviously coming now to these tracks, if they obviously don't have a say over where we race and obviously often money talks as um, with a lot of these races, I mean, just how much of an impact do you think these drivers making these statements has, I guess, both for the drivers, but also, I guess, for the communities um, within these countries more widely? See, I've heard, I mean, this is Qatar specific and bear in mind, Qatar has got a population of 1.7 million. I think 300K of those are actual Qataris. So it probably doesn't apply as well to Saudi Arabia and the UAE. But I was hearing from someone um, who'd been asking about, you know, what, what, asking Qataris that had been at La Salle that weekend, you know, what what do you think about like Lewis's helmets and all that kind of thing? And the truth is they really doesn't bother them that much. There's a big, you need to remember to separate the powers that be the state of of Qatar and Saudi Arabia versus the common citizen. And in that, well, I say common citizen, citizens who have enough money to go to a Grand Prix at last minute, but they didn't seem to have a problem with it. Um, Overall, I like it though. I, I do, I do, I love the fact that all year long we've been hearing from so many different sects about Lewis. You know, he won't actually stand up for people, though, will he? He says all this stuff, but he won't actually do anything. He won't actually make an actual statement. And he rocks up in Qatar with a rainbow helmet with a trans flag on the back. You're just like, oh yeah, really? Incidentally, I also thought that helmet just looked really, really cool. I was really happy to see it on top step of the podium. Absolutely. And I think particularly, I mean, this is kind of dissertation territory for me as well. So it's a, it's a keen interest that I'll kind of be taking in these kind of issues, but particularly with the World Cup as well in Qatar and just how much that World Cup got kind of bought into the weekend. It almost seems that Qatar were using the Grand Prix as a bit of a warm up for the World Cup, which I don't know if that was in many ways disrespecting Formula One away in a little bit. But yeah. I, I don't know, because obviously the World Cup's going to Qatar next year. We're going to be racing a lot more in Saudi Arabia. Do you think that Formula One, just lastly, before we go into predictions this weekend, is moving in the right direction in terms of where it is racing? No, although I'm not I'm not actually as concerned about Qatar, Saudi Arabia and the UAE as I am about the idea of multiple races in a single country. Like the, mm. the, the idea that now we've got Guan Yu Zhou, we can have two races in China we've only got one good track in China. Like what, are you going to send cars around, what's it called, Zhejiang, which is too small for touring cars, Zhuhai, which is one of the worst tracks I've ever driven on in a simulator, which was going to be used for Formula One. There aren't, oh, we can just build a street circuit in Shanghai. Oh yeah, great, great idea, Liberty. And then the US, Miami track looks really bad and now they're trying to get another one in Las Vegas. Oh. Do you remember how the last one went? <laughs> I tried they to forget about this. that like, one. Oh, we want we want a downtown street circuit. No, it'll go the Miami way. It'll just turn into a car park around a stadium. We've already had a race in a car park in Las Vegas. We had two of them and they were awful. Don't go to Las Vegas. 
if you're going to go to a new country, go to South Africa, go to Algeria, go back to Argentina, don't have three races in the US just because, actually, you know what? Yeah, you know what? Do it because you will sell them out. The Miami pre-sale sold out in like a couple of hours. So yeah, the money is definitely there. But even right, so, safe. that doesn't mean, I don't have to like it is the point. <laughs> Or perhaps I'd say failing that, and I think that you're glaring emissions there, Joe. Um, braces in Germany and in Portugal. H- how good do they sound? What about I mean, France? We could lose France in the next few years. Like, I've got a friend who has this massive agenda of getting a Paris street circuit, which sounds like a terrible idea. But realistically, that's the only way the French Grand Prix can survive, because Le Castellet's in the middle of nowhere. Manicor sends people to sleep. And all the other ones, they either won't have Formula One because they're MotoGP or endurance tracks, or they're just flat out lethal. Like, this is the only way we can keep these countries on the calendar anymore. Ah, oh, Formula, Formula One's in such a great place. It's just, we, we love it. Secretly, we love it. But let's move on to the Saudi Arabian Grand Prix this weekend. Uh, Joe, it's time to make some predictions. So, firstly, of course, the pole, pole, we've not done a pole position prediction, but I feel at this stage of the season, and particularly on this track, pole position could be quite crucial this weekend. So, who do you think is going to get pole? Lewis Hamilton. I agree 100% That's my with full you. And I guess we've there is no question. No question. I think, particularly with that new power unit as well, that Mercedes is going to be quick. I mean, at average speed, 160 miles an hour around the track. Enough. It's there. a new power unit on a new track with possibly the angriest Lewis Hamilton I have seen for several years. What does one plus one plus one equal? <laughs> like, come on. Well, Three I point. think one plus one plus one, in this case, perhaps equals an eighth world championship. But that we'll have to wait and see in the next couple of races. Moving on to the podium now, Joe, where are you going? Um, well, I think Lewis is going to win in no small part because it's a new track. Lewis is good at those. And this it seems to be a very new power unit friendly circuit, if not necessarily a Mercedes power track. Second and third is really interesting. I want to say Bottas is going to be on the podium, but it just takes a cursory <laughs> glance at the last few races to see what a crazy prediction that actually is. Um, I'm, do you know what? I'm, it's the most boring podium possible. Hamilton first, Verstappen second, capitalising from a bad Valtteri Bottas start. Bottas finishes third. I'm 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 gonna I'm gonna differ with you somewhat. I'm gonna go Lewis Hamilton first. Vax Verstappen, of course, finishing finishing second. That's just how this season has gone. As much as I think this, this is a trap Mercedes will do well on, Valtteri Bottas is being Valtteri Bottas at the moment. And I think just having seen his consistency over the last few races, I'm going with Sergio Perez to get third. Admittedly, a very, 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 very long way off of Verstappen. And I would say his closest challenger being Bottas. And I would say I think McLaren could have a good weekend. I think with that Ferrari powertrain as well, I think it'll be a very close battle for third, but I think Perez is going to win that one. So we've done pole position. We've done podium. Which driver slash team slash anything are you looking out for in particular this weekend? On recent form, although although they don't really need a good result in Saudi Arabia, given their current position, it's Ferrari. Um, I really want to see how that power unit stacks up against the Honda and the Mercedes. I, if it's behind, it really isn't behind by far. And also, they don't seem to be having massive reliability problems like a lot of the field are. So I'm going to say Charles Leclerc, uh, partly because 
I still think he's I still think he's the clear number one at Ferrari just because I, I rate Charles Leclerc so highly. But you know, that new power unit by in comparison, well, combined with this track, yeah, I, I think Ferrari are gonna be in for Yeah, Ferrari will be in for a good weekend this weekend. And I'm I'm gonna sort of uh perhaps simile. I mean We've mentioned, obviously, Hamilton and Verstappen obviously being far ahead here. But with that third place, Charles Leclerc could easily get a podium if that power train is as good as we think it is. I'm just, I think we've... If Bottas does a Bottas. Yeah. I mean, we've just said, I think the consistency of that Mercedes and the Rebel is what holds them up. So, yeah, he'll be in that fight, definitely. I'm going to say George Russell, I think, is someone to look out for. Just because I don't know if the Mercedes power unit is something that could potentially do very well around here. It is normally a power... something where power has come in, Mercedes have tended to do better, of course, maybe not a Williams-friendly track, but, you know, I think George Russell is due a result. I think he's not had a great few races, and I have a feeling he's due a result at some point. I feel this could be the track he does it. Of course, if George Russell missed a Saturday as well, if it is as difficult to overtake at Jeddah as we think it could be, Mr. Saturday has a brilliant qualifying session, you know, potentially like he was in Sochi, has that ability to keep himself up there, hold off faster cars behind him and get himself some points potentially. So I'm, I'm, I'm saying it now. I think George Russell could be in the points this weekend. Bold prediction uh, for a team that have literally nothing to race for anymore. Mm. Like they've got eighth, they're safe. Alfa Romeo are too inept to, to make up 12 points in the last two races. Also, Jos Capito is not going to be there because he's um, got COVID. So that would be an interesting result if if Russell was able to somehow get in the points because, and I hate saying this, since Belgium, he has actually been very average. He has not had a good second half of the season. No, and he it, perhaps, I don't know, having had the Mercedes drive confirmed, I don't know if he's just settling a little bit, but I feel there is something in him that I feel just wants to, he'll want to get a result at some point, maybe just to justify himself being in that car next year. But we've got an exciting end to 2021 and obviously next week we'll be back talking about the Saudi Arabian Grand Prix looking ahead to that final race as well Max Verstappen could be champion this weekend I don't want to break anyone's hearts or anything but I think if Verstappen wins the race and Lewis Hamilton finishes lower than fifth then Verstappen will be champion this weekend so again hopefully that won't be the case and we'll have a really good episode to, to do next week but Joe, it's been fantastic to have your company. Thank you so much for coming on this week. Thank you very much for inviting me. And again, if you want me on very, very soon, please feel free because Formula One, I mean, it's the fact it's stopping soon is just breaking my heart. Honestly, and the fact it is stopping so soon, not, I mean, I have the one advantage of being able to perhaps to prepare some content um, for the off-season, which I'm very much looking forward to do. But of course, in my pursuit to be number one, listen to podcasts and everyone's Spotify raps beyond Joe's. I feel, I feel, I don't know if the off season will kill that off slightly. And I'm going to have to wait until March again, but there's plenty to look forward to on that regard. As I go on my mission to fulfill everyone's Spotify raps. And on that note, thanks very much for listening. <laughs>